Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. In 1855, the U.S. government entered into the Treaty of Point Elliot with the Duwamish Nation, guaranteeing reservation land and hunting and fishing rights. That treaty was ratified by the U.S. Senate in 1859. The treaty established the Lummi, Muckleshoot, Swinomish, and Tulalip reservations, but the Duwamish people resisted leaving their land due to its proximity to the water and the inherent connection to the ancestral homeland. In 1866, U.S. Indian agent Thomas Page recommended they get a reservation in Seattle, but that was fought by settlers and the federal government denied the tribe federal recognition. The Duwamish people have been fighting for federal recognition ever since. The most recent appeal filed in 2015 remains pending at the Interior Board of Indian Appeals to this day. James Rasmussen is a Duwamish tribal member and Superfund manager for the Duwamish River Cleanup Coalition. James, it is a pleasure to see you again. Nice to see you again, Paul. Let's talk a little bit about our Facebook exchange because I dropped my daughter off at school in Tequila. I want to take a long walk and get my steps in. I start walking at the Starfire Complex, and lo and behold, hold for the first time, I see the juncture of the green and black rivers, what's left of the Black River, a little triangle there, all kinds of vegetation on it, and a bridge going right over so you can see there's the spot. It felt pretty potent to me to see that, you know, knowing that uh, the Duwamish River begins there, that the name of uh, essentially... Seattle originally was Duwamps after the Duwamish, Chief Seattle of Duwamish Heritage. It felt pretty significant. And then you and I had an exchange, and you said that's where your people are from. Right. Black River Village, it would be, I'm thinking, just to the east of that, where the confluence is, was one of the larger villages on the Black River. That is where my family is from. The Black River uh, became a quote-unquote ghost river in about 1912 or so. Help me out with the, with the dates here. When the ship canal went in and the average lake level of Lake Washington went down nine feet, and then instead of being the outlet of Lake Washington, the Black River became the, a dammed river and the hydrology changed, whereas the Cedar River now goes into Lake Washington and the outlet is the ship canal. So that was about a little over 100 years ago that that mm-hmm. began to happen. In pretty much one day, um, the people that were still hanging on at the, at the Black River Village, which there still were people there, were pretty much doomed without water. From what I've read in different historical references is that the settlers that were in Renton, you know, actually grabbed gunny sacks and started putting salmon that were stranded in the river into the gunny sacks so that, you know, it's kind of like easy pickings. And from that time forward, that really made everything difficult for survival here. Not only the first laws in the city of Seattle of not being able to own property, um, not being able to be here after dark unless you were sponsored specifically by somebody. And again, that is history. Hopefully it's ancient history, but in some ways it's really not. The tribe still deals with 
unbearable situations from time to time. I was just on an email to um, B.J. Cummings, who's was the first coordinator of the Duwamish River Cleanup Coalition and a, a very important person as far as restorations and cleanup of the river and that type of stuff. We're doing a little thing of um, a tour of the river. And part of that is what was known as T-107 Park, which is known as Ha'apus uh, Park now by the Port of Seattle. It's the backside of Kellogg Island, where the only stretch of the old river is. And there's an archaeological site there. And she, was, she had pictures of uh, some of the artifacts that were there. And I had to write her a little note to say, yeah, those are the artifacts the Port of Seattle took away from the tribe after having them at, you know, the Longhouse and Cultural Center, because it's right across the street from where they were, because they were going to give them to Squamish. That only happened a couple of years ago. So when we think, hopefully things have changed, in a lot of ways, they really haven't. There's a lot of manipulation and, and that type of stuff that happens today in Indian country. Right. So tell us about your, your heritage. About Can you tell us a little bit about your line? Sure. Myself, I've served on the Dramas Tribal Council for over, over 30 years. I was the first director of the Longhouse and Cultural Center. I was part of the nonprofit board that raised the money to build the Longhouse and Cultural Center and buy the land. Before me, my mother, Ann Rasmussen, um, served on the Duwamish Tribal Council for over 30 years. Um, before her, my grandfather, Myron Overacker, when the council reorganized in 1925, and by the way, that's before any of the other Indian Reorganization Act tribes did, he served on the council for also more than 30 years. My family is not just members of the tribe. We've been part of the leadership um, for generations. Now, before him, his mother, her, her name was Anne. And then before her, her mother, who was Anne Tuttle, who her Indian name was Quitzlitza, she married Abner Tuttle. That's one of the reasons that my family's been able to survive in this town is because it was Abner who got the homestead. He was a Civil War veteran and he married Anne Tuttle. That's pretty much as far back as I trace it right now. But I mean, one of the things that when you really start doing this work, you realize that all of the tribes in the Pacific or around Puget Sound at the very least, we're all related. You know, over generations and generations and generations of um, Kitsap and Nooksack and Lummi and, and all of that type of stuff, they're all interrelated. For people on the outside looking in, and they say, okay, you're Duwamish, right? Well, in reality, I, I, there's, there's other lines of my family that, that I have. And somebody who professes to be, I'm Muckleshoot. Well, there's one problem with that. There is no Muckleshoot. As a tribe, there was a place called Muckleshoot, which in the words of one of their tribal chairmen many years ago said that's that was the place where all good Indian people were supposed to go. And if you didn't go there, then you weren't a good Indian person. And so 
um, you know, uh, which became the reservation, became in court cases after the Bolt decision, successors in interest to um, Duwamish tribal fishing rights. And then you also have the reservation to the north, which is Tulalip, that again, all good Indian people should have gone to, even though it is not a tribe, it's a place. The same type of thing there. And what, what started out as fishing as an issue for recognition is now geometrically increased because of gaming. Even though the Duwamish tribe has no plans for a casino, the other tribes that are actually opposing us, in other words, Muckleshoot, Halalup, as well as Puyallup and Suquamish, that's their fear. And what this comes down to is about money, lobbying, and what these large casino operations can actually get done in the federal government. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Duwamish tribe is not recognized today. Mm -hmm. We were recognized at the end of the Clinton administration. Papers were signed and everything was done. And then George Bush came in and put a hold on all actions that were taken by the Clinton administration in the last several months of the administration. Now, when we first looked at that, it made us nervous. And then we talked to some people and they say, don't worry, George Bush is not after the Duwamish tribe. Now, this has to do with roads and forests and, and other major issues that the Bush administration wanted to turn around. But what that did was keep that door open long enough where a lot of lobbying was done in Washington, D.C. to turn back our recognition, even though it was all legally done, signed off, and the person that signed it, as far as he's concerned, from that day forward, the Duwamish tribe should enjoy all the back money that we should have gotten up to this point. He's testified to that in front of not only on film, but in court cases that are going on right now. This is our whole case right now, is that what was done by the Bush administration was done improperly. And I might add also by done to the Chinook as well. Now the Chinook tribe is a long ways south of us, you know, down by Vancouver, Washington, but it, you know, in our case, yes, it was tragic, but in their case, they were recognized by the federal government a month ahead of us. Ours was actually on the very last days of the Clinton administration. They were a month ahead of us. They were invited to the White House because the White House was doing a kind of an organization of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And Chinook have a very important part of the Lewis and Clark expedition. They helped them survive a winter um, before they returned back the way they came. And they were at a dinner at the White House and, you know, probably feeling really good for themselves. And suddenly they got a phone call from their tribal office saying that their recognition had been pulled back. 
we all still fight for this and it has nothing to do with the money that we might be able to get because it's not that much. But there's two things that when I was a council person was my responsibility, the health and the welfare of my people. And when a tribe is federally recognized, that means that they have a right to health care because that's what the treaty says. And they have a right to education because that's what the treaty says. We don't have that right now. There's a lot of good things going on with the Duwamish tribe right now, but that's why we fight so hard. When you talk about the Muckleshoot tribe, not being a tribe, but being a place, that is backed up in part by this uh, Puget Sound geography done by T.T. Waterman mm -hmm. and, and gathered by Vi Hilbert, Jay Miller, and Zalmiza here. And in it, forgive me for the pronunciation, but it's something like Buckleshoot, yeah. and it's a place where you can see all over. That's what, how it was translated from Walshoot Seed, Southern Puget Sound Salish dialect into English. And so when you say that it's not a tribe, it's a place, indigenous people of many different tribes, you say the good Indians were sent there. When you say the good Indians, it begs clarification because, uh, because we don't know if you're saying that sarcastically. When I interviewed Russell Means, he took a line out of Black Elk's lexicon and talked about, forgive me for this, it's, it's not a phrase that I uh, used, but uh, Black Elk, uh, Russell Means by way of Black Elk, uh, hang around the Fort Indians. So immediately through my mind, I'm wondering, when you say good Indians, are you saying good because they were listening to orders, or what do you mean exactly? Not necessarily listening to orders. Um, there's one thing that was drilled into my head um, when I was very young by my grandfather. Both my parents worked. My father was a Seattle police officer. My mother um, worked different jobs. And so my grandfather would take care of me. And I would also help my grandfather on things that he did as well. He was a sound engineer and, and other things. And I would help him with those things. But one of the things that my grandfather used to talk about was that a reservation is not a place that anybody wants to go. It's the place of last resort. With a lot of Indian people in the talk about this time between 1915 and 1925, this is what the federal government is actually basing their whole reason for not recognizing the Duwamish tribe and saying, within those 10 years, there was so much turnover in the tribe that we ceased becoming or were that same tribe, even though reorganizing in 1925, yes, a lot of the elders had passed away, but these were still blood relatives of those elders that were reorganizing the tribe in 1925. We proved all of that. And even though in the rules for recognition, they are not supposed to focus on a small amount of years, because of the records being difficult to find. And they realize that, but that has been thrown all out the window. Now, I wanna make sure I explain this. 
let's say from the 1930s, when the Muckleshoot Reservation was organized and the council that was um, there, which was more of a business council overseeing the business of the reservation, this was the only place where these people could go. They didn't have any option. And through that time, let's say from the 1930s, and also this is really important to understand, we went through a world war during that time, and we went through a flu epidemic, very much like we're seeing today. And so a lot of changes happening, plus a lot of settlers moving into the area, Indian people being pushed out, their property being taken away, longhouses being burnt. And my family had, had a place to be and to still be home. And there were some other families that were able to do that. And that's where those people come from, from 1925. All the way up until the 1960s, there was no question that the Duwamish tribe was a tribe. You could ask anybody in the area, from leadership all the way down. Everybody did agree. That's because if you lived on a reservation, whether it's a tribal reservation or just a reservation, nobody got anything. You know, a government cheese was one of the big perks of being on a, a tribal reservation, um, those type of things. But poverty levels, health levels, suicide levels, and everything else were just off the map. And they still are. When I say that's where good Indian people go, yes, I'm using that pretty facetiously. But that's actually what that tribal chair said in front of the National Congress of American Indians, trying to prove his case that he was the tribal chairman of Tulalip, therefore, was the tribal chair of uh, Snohomish, um, Snoqualmie, Duwamish, you know, he, you know, all of these tribes, um, even Samish at that time, because Samish were not recognized then. And as we know, the Snoqualmie are recognized today. So that's why I say it that way, because it's important to remind people that the manipulation that's going on is insidious, is truly insidious that these now huge corporations that are tribes are worried about us? That makes no sense at all. It makes sense because they know it's real. And that's why they fight against us so much, especially recently over the last couple of months from Muckleshoot. Lord knows they're the largest employer in South King County, and they're worried about a membership of a little over 500. The reason they're worried is because what we are saying is the truth. I go on and on. That's okay. Um, I appreciate getting your perspective, and um, it's fascinating to me. It's tragic in many ways and fascinating. And you're still here, and we're still talking about this, and that's a good thing. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is one of the leaders in Congress of the Progressive Caucus, seems to be 
a very capable organizer and negotiator. And um, sometimes I kind of wished I live in the 7th Congressional District because of her leadership. It would seem to me that she would be right on this issue and maybe see it the way that you see it and see it in the way that a person who believes in justice would see it. What are your dealings with her and has she been as good as you'd liked her to be regarding this issue? Interesting you asked that question because it was about two weeks ago that our tribal council um, met with Pramila. We had a pre-meeting before the meeting with Pramila, which is always a good thing to do. So you get all of your questions and that type of thing and, and what we might be worried about. Um, you know, Primella has a lot of connections with some of those larger reservations and everything else as well around. But we weren't really sure what she was going to say when we directly asked her the question about support, you know, going through what we're going through right now. She made no bones about it. And the way she talked about it is that this is the mantle that I took up from Jim McDermott. And McDermott, who was our congressman, year after year after year would be pushing bills through Congress to try to get the Duwamish tribe recognized, showing up to like our annual meetings and that type of thing. You know, I mean, when a congressman shows up to your meeting, it, it still gives you faith that, you know, we can hopefully get something done. The difficulty of trying to get a bill through Congress has to, has to do with like I said, that lobbying effort that happens from the tribes around us, which, you know, sinks anything like that. I have another analogy that I found out about, oh, this is probably about eight years ago, when we found out that everything was being pulled back on, um, on our recognition at the beginning of the Bush administration. How much does it cost to buy a state or a senator, you know, in the United States Senate? And the answer to that question is a little over $30,000. Because that amount of money was donated and to one of our senators, and which we had very good access to and also was helping us on our case, and that door got shut. I'm still unclear about Pramila Jayapal's uh, record as a defender of the Duwamish. What she has done is to make sure that the tribe knows that we have her support. Now, we've all been through this battle for a long time, like I said with Jim McDermott. We don't expect her to try to put a bill through Congress, which would be the first thing you might expect. But there are other ways and other things that she can do working within the federal government, the, what's going on in our court case, why is the federal acknowledgement process going after this case, and to try to find out some of the background with that from inside of Washington. Those are the type of things that she's starting to do. And I have to, I guess I should be careful. I mean, I, I hope now that, you know, I'm, I'm saying this publicly, that is somebody will start a campaign against her because of that? I don't know. I don't think so. 
I hope not. You know, it's indigenous people are a lot more likely to believe in the efficacy of the energetic realm as equal to or maybe even superior to the material realm. Can you talk to me about what kind of energetic efforts are being made to work on this? And you might tell me, Paul, it's none of your business. I, I, and I can live with that. But I, I would th part, find that part fascinating to know if uh, any kind of rituals or prayer or anything like that is being used in this effort. I think one of the more important things now for the Duwamish people is we actually have a place to tell our story from. That now is a very powerful place. We know that. You know, we have from the area people who understand these things. Even before opening the longhouse, they came in to bless the place and everything else. And they were surprised that the spirits of our ancestors are still here. And they're very happy about what's going on. But also that this place is something real, something that going back to the very beginning of the process of going through the recognition process, this is one thing that our tribal members were asking for, a museum, something like that. And now that we have that, it gives a place for people to go to. Plus, it, being able to tell that story is really important. Now, there's something that came out of all Cecile Hansen, who is our tribal chair, who's been our tribal chair, seems like forever, over 40 years now, more like almost 50 years. She used to, as she does, give speeches around town and that type of thing. And one of the things that she used to talk about was that for this 150,000 acres that we ceded away in our treaty, is people should be paying us rent because we never got anything from the treaty. And a group out of people that were supporting us organized and they call themselves Real Rent Seattle. We have thousands of people just like a public radio station operates that kind of give a donation every month we have that same type of thing going on, which has been a godsend. Instead of you know, being right on the line of being able to keep the doors open at the Longhouse and Cultural Center, which for years, I can tell you, that's where we were. I mean, we opened up the Longhouse and Cultural Center right after the market crashed, you know, during the Obama administration. And that is unencumbered money. That can be used in any way we see fit. So it goes to staff people, advertisements, and those type of things, but also gives us money to do research. Our attorneys that are working on this, KNL Gates, which is a very prestigious firm here in Seattle, they're working pro bono. But a lot of the stuff around that. And when I say research, I'm talking about all kinds of in-depth research of stuff that we've already researched already, you know, going back those almost 50 years now. It gives us that support. And I think that when you start looking at that, we really realize that 
we have a lot of support in this city of, of, from people who understand the history and what has happened. That also helps. That is an incredibly important thing. I mean, we always knew that we had support out there, but now it's real, it's tangible. Let me just tie this to something else. Myself and Cecile and other tribal members get asked all the time, you know, a big meeting is coming up and we want to do some kind of recognition of, you know, where we are, because that's something that people are doing now. In some cases, we'll take that and we'll go. But in this case, these people are not just asking for that recognition of the land and where it comes from. They're putting their money where its mouths, their mouths are. You know, whenever I do that type of thing, I have to bite my tongue because it's, it's kind of like, you have me here in front of this organization, you know, welcoming you to Duwamish land and thank you very much for the opportunity to do that. The other answer is, okay, you're in Duwamish land and as far as I'm concerned, get the fuck out. You know? <laughs> I'm just, you know, you know, if, if you're saying that's what it is, then go, leave. That's why I bite my tongue and, and try not to do that. Although I have been known to um, do some things from time to time that do upset a lot of people. So. Well, there are limits to patience. Mm -hmm. And I believe me, you don't have to, you don't have to talk to me about that. I can completely understand that. If I go to quick screen share, you can see that this is uh, the website, Real Rent Duwamish. And, uh, how to determine rent, to learn more about the tribe and land acknowledgement, what have you. There has been, and I think it started, I first heard it at readings, poetry readings in British Columbia, land acknowledgements. Is this a positive thing or is this more sort of woke lip service? I, don't, I wouldn't even call it woke. I would call it more token than woke. In other words, at least in a lot of people's minds now, yeah, you're right. This land used to belong to somebody else, and we really should acknowledge that. And then you get into, well, how do you do that? Because we talk about Coast Salish people. Do we talk about, I wouldn't call it woke, because being woke means you should understand a lot more about it than it's just something I sh we should do at the beginning of the meeting. We'll give you five minutes to be able to say hello. See what good people we are. We did that, and that's what I mean by it. 20 years ago, the Duwamish River was named a Superfund site. Correct. It would seem to me in 20 years, you could do the whole job. You can clean that river. You can make it pristine once again. It's not exactly the case. No, no. Oh, God, no. We have to understand that this is five miles of river that for well over 100 years has been contaminated by industrial contamination. And it's not, you know, a certain level of the river or anything. There are places in the river that are more contaminated than other places in the river. And you, you don't do this kind of a job quickly. The whole idea of measure twice, cut once, in this case, it's like measure five times, 10 times to make sure you got it right. That's the process that I've been in with the last 20 years. But I go back on the river around 40 years in working on habitat sites. Um, the work I did with John Beale was a very important person in my life. And, you know, understanding the history of the river and making sure that that's part of the story that's told as part of the Superfund site. 
doesn't start with 20 years ago. It doesn't start with 100 years ago. It starts from the time before. To understand that Duwamish people were here when the ice receded. And we have those stories to tell about that. We know. I was just at Duwamish Hill Preserve in Tukwila on Saturday. Um, and that's one of the hills that are left in the Duwamish Valley from when the ice sheets would come through. And it's rock. But if you look at that hill, you'll find artifacts going back to the tropical age before the ice age. This is an understanding that my people have. And so being able to communicate that on all of those different levels is what DRCC does. And to make sure that this is a public process, that the communities that are affected by this understand and can make meaningful comment, their comment. We're not telling them what to say. We're listening to them. We inform them about the process and about how that works, but then they can hook into that process. And every time community has been involved, the cleanups that have happened on the Duwamish River to date are stronger. And that's the power of those voices. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it is a long and frustrating process, but it is because that's the way EPA works. They want to do the job right. Well, you, maybe your reference uh, to the glacial age makes you understand how slow things go with government. You know, you mentioned John Beal, may he rest in peace, B.J. Cummings, Cecile Hansen. These are all people that, have, uh, that I've interviewed in my time as an interviewer in this town. And I'm very grateful to have access to you and to have this discussion, this very intimate discussion, to be able to inform myself and other people so that hopefully there can be a groundswell of support. If not something that ends in federal recognition, at least that ends up in more people understanding real rent Duwamish, which I think is a masterstroke. I think it's a genius. I think it's completely inspired and uh, I'm making the, uh, the plans for my own organization, which rebranded on September 1st, to also be a renter. So you can expect that to happen if I have anything to do with it. Thank you, too. Thank you for your time. Heichka, James Rasmussen, uh, I, I wish you continued success, health, and happiness. And, 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 and I just want to say I'm grateful. I just want okay. to tell you that. One quick thing, it's really important that people understand real rent Duwamish did not start with the Duwamish tribe. It started with people outside the tribe, realizing the need and then organizing. And so that's what makes it really special. It wasn't us going out to the people and saying, we really need your help. You know, it took a very cynical thing that our chairperson used to say in public all the time and then actually acted on it. That's where that started from. And we're going to always be fighting for our recognition until we're able to have that. If it's something that doesn't happen in the next couple of years or so, we're still going to be there. We don't have a choice on that. Chief Seattle signed the treaty. That was one Duwamish headman 
when he signed the treaty, he was running a village site in Elliott Bay, right? You know, he had a lot of influence around Puget Sound and Suquamish and other places, but he was a headman from Elliott Bay. But there were five other signatures from Duwamish village site leaders on that treaty as well. So, you know, these are the type of facts that get lost when we talk about our recognition and why we fight for it. It's, and we have allies in different places. We talk to the Yakima and Yakima supports us. And the only reason they do is because of the treaty. If Indian people abrogate the treaty, which is in a sense what's going on, we are hurting ourselves. And that one thing is why we keep fighting. Thank you very much, Paul, for the opportunity to be able to talk with you again. Um, it's always enjoyable. And I've got a couple of things to take care of before I can uh, start to relax this afternoon. I work half days, so I, it gives me an opportunity for me to feed my squirrels and blue jays, which is something that I enjoy doing very much um, every day. Cascadian Prophets is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at cascadiapoeticslab.org.